0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 131 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 Lectures, entitled From Jesus to Christ, translated by Charles Davy. This is Lecture 9, given on October 13, 1911. The lectures given so far have led essentially to two questions. One relates to the objective event connected with the name Christ Jesus, to the nature of that impulse, which as the Christ impulse entered into human evolution. The other question is, how can an individual establish his connection with the Christ impulse? In other words, how can the Christ impulse become effective for the individual? The answers to these two questions are, of course, interrelated. For we have seen that the Christ event is an objective fact of human earth evolution, and that something real, something actual, comes forth to meet us in the resurrection. With Christ there rose out of the grave a kind of seed kernel for the reconstruction of our human phantom. And it is possible for this seed kernel to incorporate itself in those individuals who find a connection with the Christ impulse. That is the objective side of the relationship of the individual to the Christ impulse. Today we wish to add the subjective side. We will try to find an answer to the question, How does the individual now find it possible gradually to take into himself that which comes forth through the resurrection of Christ? To answer this question, we must first distinguish between two things. When Christianity entered into the world as a religion, it was not merely a religion for those who wished to approach Christ by one or other of the spiritual paths. It was to be a religion which all men could accept and make their own. A special occult or esoteric development was not necessary for finding the way to Christ. We must therefore fix our attention first on that path to Christ, the exoteric path which every soul, every heart can find in the course of time. We must then distinguish this path from the esoteric path which, right up to our own time, has revealed itself to the soul who desired to seek the Christ by gaining access to occult powers. We must distinguish between the path of the physical plane and the path of the supersensible worlds. In hardly any other century has there been such obscurity concerning the outward exoteric way to Christ as in the 19th and this obscurity increased during the second half of the century. More and more men came to lose the knowledge of the way to Christ. Those imbued with the thought of today no longer form the right concepts. Such concepts, for example, as souls, even in the 18th century, formed on their way to the Christ impulse. Even the first half of the 19th century was illumined by a certain possibility, of finding the Christ impulse as something real. But for the most part in the 19th century, this path to Christ was lost to men. And we can understand this when we realize that we are standing at the beginning of a new path to Christ. We have often spoken of the new way, now opening for souls through a renewal of the Christ event. In human evolution it always happens that a kind of low point must be reached in any trend before a new light comes in once more. The turning away from the spiritual worlds during the nineteenth century was only natural in face of the fact that in the twentieth century a quite new epoch for the spiritual life of men must begin, in the special sense we have often mentioned. To those who have come to know something of spiritual science, our movement often appears to be something quite new. If, however, we look away from the enrichment that spiritual endeavors in the West have experienced recently through the inflow of the concepts of reincarnation and karma, bound up with the whole teaching of repeated earth lives and its significance for human evolution, we must say that in other respects ways into the spiritual world similar to our theosophical way are by no means new in Western history. Anyone, however, who tries to rise into the spiritual world along the present path of theosophy will find himself somewhat estranged from the manner in which theosophy was cultivated in the 18th century. At that time, in this neighborhood, Baden, and especially in Württemberg, much theosophy was studied but everywhere an illuminated view of the teaching concerning repeated earth lives was lacking, and thereby a cloud was cast over the whole field of theosophical work. For those who could look deeply into occult connections, and particularly into the connection of the world with the Christ impulse, what they saw was overshadowed for this reason. But within the whole horizon of Christian philosophy and Christian life, something like theosophical endeavors arose continually. This striving toward theosophy was active everywhere, even in the outward exoteric paths of men who could go no further than sharing externally in the life of some congregation, Christian or otherwise. How theosophical endeavors penetrated Christian endeavors is shown by figures such as Bengal and Ettinger, who worked in wurttemberg, men who, in their whole way of thinking, if we remember that they lacked the idea of reincarnation, reached all that man can reach of higher views concerning evolution, in so far as they had made the Christ impulse their own. The ground roots of theosophical life have always existed, hence, there is much that is correct in a treatise on theosophical subjects written by Ettinger in the eighteenth century. In the preface to a book on Ettinger's work, published in 1847, Rothe, who taught in Heidelberg University, wrote, quote, What theosophy really wants is often difficult to recognize in the case of the older theosophists, but it is nonetheless clear that theosophy, as far as it has gone today, can claim no scientific status and therefore cannot extend its influence more widely it would be very hasty to conclude that theosophy is only an ephemeral phenomenon and entirely unjustifiable from a scientific standpoint. History already testifies loudly enough to the contrary. It tells us how this enigmatic phenomenon has never been able to accomplish anything, and yet, unnoticed, it is continually breaking through afresh, held together in its most varied forms by the chain of a never-dying tradition. Now, we must remember that the man who wrote this learned about theosophy only in the 40s of the 19th century, as it had come over from many theosophists of the 18th. What came over was certainly not clothed in the forms of our scientific thought. It was therefore difficult to believe that the theosophy of that time could affect wider circles. Apart from this, such a voice coming to us out of the 40s of the 19th century, must appear significant when it says, The main thing is that once theosophy has become a real science and has thus clearly yielded definite results, these will gradually become matters of general and even popular conviction and will be regarded as accepted truths by people who could not follow the paths by which they were discovered and by which alone they could be discovered. Close quote. After this certainly comes a pessimistic paragraph with which, in its bearing on theosophy, we cannot now agree. For anyone familiar with the present form of spiritual scientific endeavors will be convinced that this theosophy, in the form in which it desires to work, can become popular in the widest circles. Even such a paragraph may therefore inspire us with courage when we read further, quote, Still this rests in the lap of the future, and there we will not encroach. For the present we will gratefully rejoice in what our valued Ettinger has so beautifully set forth and which may certainly count upon a sympathetic reception in a wide circle. Close quote. Thus we see that theosophy was a pious hope of those who came to know something of the old theosophy that was handed down from the eighteenth century. After that time, the stream of theosophical life was buried under the materialistic trends of the nineteenth century. Only through what we may now accept as the dawn of a new age do we again approach the true spiritual life, and now in a form which can be so scientific that in principle every heart and every soul can understand it. During the nineteenth century, there was a complete loss of understanding for something that the theosophists of the 18th century still fully possessed. They called it Centralzin, inner light. Ettinger, who worked in Moorhat, near Karlsruhe, was for a time the pupil of a quite simple man in Turingia, named Volker, whose pupils knew that he possessed what was called inner light. In quotes. What in those days was this inner light? It was none other than that which now arises in every man, when earnestly and with iron energy he works through the content of my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. It was fundamentally nothing else that this simple man of Turingia possessed. What he brought into existence, for his time a very interesting theosophy, was the teaching which influenced Ettinger. It is difficult for a man of the present day to reconcile himself to the knowledge that a deepening of theosophy occurred so recently and gave rise to a rich literature, varied though this is in libraries and among antiquarians. Something else is equally difficult for a man of today, to accept the Christ event as, first of all, an objective fact. How much discussion of this matter there was in the nineteenth century, it is impossible in a short course to indicate even in outline how many and diverse are the views of the nineteenth century concerning Christ Jesus. And anyone who takes the trouble to inquire further into opinions concerning Christ Jesus, whether those of theologians or of laymen, will encounter some very real difficulties if the views of the nineteenth century on this question are considered in relation to the times in which better traditions still prevailed. In the nineteenth century it even became possible for persons to be regarded as great theologians when they were far removed from any acceptance of an object of Christ, who entered into and worked in the history of the world. And here we come to the question, what relationship to the Christ can be found by an individual who takes no esoteric path, but remains entirely in the field of the exoteric? So long as we keep to the standpoint of those 19th century theologians, who held that human evolution can take its course purely in the inner being of man and has nothing to do with the external world of the macrocosm, we cannot reach an objective appreciation of Christ Jesus. We come to all kinds of grotesque ideas, but never to a relationship with the Christ event. For anyone who believes that he can reach the highest human ideal compatible with earth evolution merely by an inner soul path, through a kind of self-redemption, a relationship with the objective Christ is impossible. We may also say that wherever the redemption of man is thought of as a matter for psychology to deal with, there is no relationship to the Christ. Anyone who penetrates further into cosmic mysteries soon finds that when a man believes that he can attain his highest ideal of earth existence solely through himself, Only through his own inner development, he cuts off altogether his connection with the macrocosm. Such a person believes that he has the macrocosm before him as a kind of nature, and that his inner soul development, side by side with the macrocosm, is something running parallel with it. But a connection between the two he cannot find. This is just what is so terribly grotesque in the evolution of the nineteenth century. The connection that should exist between microcosm and macrocosm has been torn asunder. If this had not happened, we should not have seen all those misunderstandings that have arisen over the terms theoretical materialism on the one hand and abstract idealism on the other. Just consider the sundering of microcosm and macrocosm, has led men who care little for the inner life of the soul to assign it, as well as the external life of the body, to the macrocosm, thus making everything subject to material processes. Others, aware that there is nevertheless an inner life, have fallen gradually into abstractions concerning everything of significance to the human soul. To be clear regarding this difficult matter, let us recall something very significant that was learned in the mysteries. How many people today believe in their innermost consciousness, If I think something, for instance, if I entertain a bad thought about my neighbor, it has no significance for the outer world. The thought is only in myself. It has a quite different significance if I give him a box on the ears. This is something that happens on the physical plane the other is a mere feeling or a mere thought. Quote. Or, again, how many people there are who, when they fall into sin or a lie or an error, say, quote, this is something that happens in the human soul, close quote. And, by contrast, if a stone falls from the roof, quote, this is something that takes place externally, close quote. And they will readily explain. Using crude sense concepts, that when a stone falls, perhaps accidentally, into water, it sets up ripples which spread out far and wide, so that everything produces effects which continue unobserved, but anything that has occurred in the soul is shut off from the world outside. People could therefore come to believe that to sin, to err, and then to put it right again is entirely a concern of the individual soul. To anyone with an outlook of this kind, something many of us have witnessed in the last two years must seem grotesque. Let me recall to you the scene in the Rosicrucian drama titled The Portal of Initiation, where Capacius and Strader enter the astral world, and it is shown that what they think, speak, and feel is not without significance for the objective world, the macrocosm, but actually releases storms in the elements. For modern man, it is absurd to suppose that destructive forces can strike at the macrocosm through somebody having had wrong thoughts. In the Mysteries, it was made very clear to the pupil that when, for example, anyone tells a lie or falls into error, this is a real process which does not concern himself only. The Germans say, quote, Thoughts are duty free, because they see no customs barrier when the thoughts arise. Thoughts belong to the objective world. They are not merely experiences of the soul. The pupil of the mystery saw, when you tell a lie, it signifies in the supersensible world the darkening of a certain light. When you perpetrate a loveless action, something in the spiritual world is burnt up in the fire of lovelessness. With errors you extinguish light in the macrocosm, close quote. The effect was shown to the pupil through objective experience, how, through an error, something is extinguished on the astral plane and darkness follows, or how, through a loveless action, something acts like a burning and destroying fire. In exoteric life, man does not know what is going on around him. He is like an ostrich with its head in the sand. He does not see effects which nevertheless are there the effects of feeling are there and they would be visible to supersensible sight if the man were led into the mysteries it was not until the 19th century that anyone could say quote, "everything in which a man has sinned everything in which he is weak is his personal affair only redemption must come about through an experience in the soul and so christ also can be only an experience in the soul" close quote what is necessary in order that man may not only find his way to Christ, but that he may not sunder his connection with the macrocosm, is the knowledge, quote, "...if you incur error and sin, these are objective, not subjective events. And because of them, something happens outside, in the cosmos." Close quote. And in the moment when a man becomes conscious that with his sin, with his error, something objective happens, when he knows that what he has done, what he has given out from himself, is not connected merely with himself, but with the whole objective course of cosmic development, then he will no longer be able to say to himself that compensation for what he has brought about is only an inner concern of the soul. There is indeed a good and significant possibility that a man who sees that thoughts and feelings are objective also see that what has brought and brings people into mistakes through successive earth lives is not an inward affair related to a single life, but is the consequence of karma. Now, an event which was outside history and outside human responsibility, as was the Luciferic influence in the old Lemurian period, could not possibly be expunged from the world by a human event. Through the Luciferic event, man gained a great benefit. He became a free being. But he also incurred a liability, the propensity to deviate from the path of the good and the right and from the path of the true. What has happened in the course of incarnations is a matter of karma. But all that has crept down from the macrocosm into the microcosm, all that the Luciferic forces have given to man, is something that man cannot deal with by himself. To compensate for the objective luciferic event, another objective act was needed. In short, man must feel that what he incurs as error and sin is not merely subjective, and that an experience in the soul which is merely subjective is not sufficient to bring about redemption. Anyone who is convinced of the objectivity of error will thus understand also the objectivity of the act of redemption. One cannot by any means treat the luciferic influence as an objective act without treating, in the same manner, the compensating act, the event of Golgotha. A theosophist can only choose between two things. Everything may be set on the foundation of karma, Of course, that is quite right as regards everything that man himself has brought about. But then we come to the necessity of stretching out the repeated lives forward and backward as far as we like, with no end to it in either direction. It always goes round and round like a wheel. The other thing, the alternative choice, is the concrete idea of evolution we must hold, that there was a Saturn, a Sun, and a Moon existence, which were quite different from the earth existence. That in the earth existence, the kind of repeated earth life as we know it first occurred. That the Luciferic event was a single, unrepeated event. All this alone gives real content to our theosophical outlook. All this, however, is inconceivable without the objectivity of the event of Golgotha. In pre Christian times, men were, as you know, different in various ways. One particular difference was that when they came down from spiritual worlds into earthly incarnations, they brought with them as substance some of the divine element. For this reason, when a man reflected on his own weakness, he always felt that the best part of him had originated in the divine sphere from which he had descended. But the divine element gradually became exhausted in the course of further incarnations, and it was quite exhausted when the events of Palestine drew near. The last after effects of it continued to be felt, but none of it was left when John the Baptist declared, quote, Change your conception of the world, for the times have changed. Now you will no longer be able to rise up into the spiritual as in the past, for the vision that could see into the old spirituality is lost. Change your thinking, and accept the divine being who is to give anew to men what they have had to lose through their descent to earth. Consequently, you may deny this if you think in the abstract, but not if you look at history in concrete terms. The feelings and perceptions of men changed altogether at the turning point of the old and new epochs, a point marked by the events of Palestine. After these events, men began to feel forsaken. They felt forsaken when they approached the hardest questions, those which concerned most directly the innermost part of the soul. When, for example, they asked themselves, quote, What will become of me when I go through the gate of death with a number of deeds that have not been made good? Close quote. Then there came to meet them a thought. Which certainly might be born from the longing of the soul, but could be allayed only when the soul could say to itself Yes, a being has lived who entered into the evolution of mankind and to whom you can hold fast. He is working in the outer cosmos where you cannot go. He is working to bring about compensation for your deeds. He will help you to make good the evil results of the luciferic influence. Through this feeling oneself forsaken, and then feeling oneself rescued by an objective power, there enters into humanity an intuitive feeling that sin is a real power, an objective fact, and that the act of redemption is also objective, an act that cannot be accomplished by an individual, for he has not invoked the Luciferic influence but only by one who works in the worlds where Lucifer is consciously active. All that I have thus set before you, in words drawn from spiritual science, was not grasped intellectually as knowledge. It resided in feelings and intuitive perceptions, and from this source came the need to turn to Christ. For those who felt this need, there was, of course, the possibility of finding in Christian communities ways by which they could deepen all such perceptions and feelings. After man had lost his primal connection with the gods, what did he find when he looked out at the material world? Through his descent into the material realm, his perception of the spiritual, of the physical manifestation of the divine in the cosmos, steadily declined. The remnants of the old clairvoyance faded by degrees, and nature for him was, in a certain sense, deprived of the divine. A merely material world was spread out before him. And in face of this material universe, he could in no way maintain a belief that the Christ principle was at work there. The 19th century Kant-Laplace theory, whereby our solar system developed out of a cosmic nebula and eventually life arose on individual planets, has led finally to the universe being regarded as a collaboration of atoms. If we try to think of Christ in this setting, as conceived by materialistic scientists, it makes no sense. There is no place for the Christ being in this cosmogony, no place for anything spiritual. You remember someone saying, I read you the passage, that he would have to tear up his whole conception of the universe If he had to believe in the resurrection, this shows that in contemplating nature or in thinking about nature, all possibility of penetrating into the living essence of natural facts has disappeared. When I speak like this, it is not by way of disapproval. The time had to come when nature would be deprived of the divine, deprived of the spirit so that man could formulate the totality of abstract thoughts required to comprehend external nature, as the outlook of Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo enabled him to do. The web of thoughts which has led to our age of machinery had to take hold of humanity. On the other hand, it was necessary that this age should have a compensation for the fact that it had become impossible in exoteric life to find a direct path from the earth to the spiritual. For if man had been able to find this path, he would have been able to find the path to Christ, as he will find it in the coming centuries. There had to be a compensation. The question now is, what had become necessary as an exoteric path for man to Christ? during the centuries, in which an atomistic conception of the universe became gradually accepted, a conception which alienated nature more and more from the divine, and in the nineteenth century grew into the study of nature, deprived of the divine. A twofold remedy was required. A spiritual vision of the Christ could be found exoterically, in two ways. One way was to show that all matter is completely foreign to man's inner spiritual being. He could be shown that it is untrue to say that everywhere in space where matter appears, only matter is present. How could this come about? In no other way than by something being given to man, which is at one and the same time spirit and matter, something which he knows is spirit and yet sees to be matter. Therefore, the transformation, the eternally valid transformation, of spirit into matter, of matter into spirit, had to continue as a vital fact. And this came to pass because the Holy Communion has been celebrated, has been maintained through the centuries as a Christian ritual. And the further we go back in the centuries toward the institution of the Holy Communion, the more can we trace how in the older times not yet so materialistic. It was better understood. In regard to higher things, when people begin to discuss something, it is a proof as a rule that they no longer understand it. Even simple matters, as long as they are understood, are not much discussed. Discussions are a proof that the point at issue is not understood by a majority of the people involved. Thus it was, with the Holy Communion. As long as it was known that the Holy Communion furnished a living proof that matter is not merely matter, but that there are ceremonial acts through which the Spirit can be united with matter, as long as people knew that this interpenetration of matter with Spirit, as it finds expression in the Holy Communion, is a union with the being of Christ, so long was the Holy Communion accepted without argument. But then came the time when materialism arose, when people no longer understood what lies at the foundation of the Holy Communion. Then they disputed whether the bread and wine are really symbols of the divine, or whether divine power actually flows into them. For anyone who can see more deeply, all the disputes which arose on this account at the beginning of the new epoch signify that the original understanding of the ritual had been lost. For those who desired to come to Christ, the Holy Communion was a complete equivalent of the esoteric path. If they could not take that path, and thus in the Holy Communion they could find a real union with Christ. For all things have their time. Certainly just as it is true in regard to the spiritual life that a quite new age is dawning, so is it true that the way to Christ, which for centuries was the right one for many people, will remain for centuries more the right one for many. Things pass over gradually into one another, and what was formerly right will gradually pass over into something else when people are ready for it. The aim of theosophy is to work in such a way that we shall grasp in the Spirit itself something concrete, something real, By means of meditation, concentration, and all that we learn as the knowledge of higher worlds, men become ripe in their inner being, not merely to experience thought worlds or worlds of abstract feelings and perceptions, but to permeate themselves inwardly with the element of the Spirit. Thereby they will experience the communion in the Spirit. Thereby thoughts, meditative thoughts, will be able to live in man. They will even be the very same, only from within, outward, as the symbol of the Holy Communion. The consecrated bread has been from without, inward. And as the undeveloped Christian can seek his way to Christ through the Holy Communion, so the developed Christian, who through progressive knowledge of the Spirit has learned to know the form of the Christ, can raise himself in spirit to what will indeed be in the future, an exoteric path for men that will be the force which is to bring to men a widening of the Christ impulse, but then all ceremonies will change, and that which formerly came to pass through the attributes of bread and wine will come about in the future through a spiritual communion. The thought of the sacrament, the holy communion, will remain only it must be made possible that certain thoughts which flow to us through what is imparted within our movement, certain inner thoughts and feelings shall permeate and spiritualize our inner being. Thoughts and feelings as fully consecrated as in the best sense of inner Christian development the Holy Communion has spiritualized the human soul and filled it with the Christ when this becomes possible, and it will be possible, we shall have progressed a stage further in evolution, and then we shall see the real proof that Christianity is greater than its external form. For a poor opinion of Christianity is held by anyone who thinks it will be obliterated when the external forms of the Christianity of a certain period are swept away. A true opinion will be permeated with the conviction that all churches which have cherished the Christ thought, all external thoughts, all external forms, are temporal and therefore transitory, while the Christ thought will live in ever new forms in the hearts and souls of men in the future, little as these new forms are evident today. Thus we are first taught by spiritual science how along one exoteric path the Holy Communion had its significance in earlier times. The other exoteric path was through the Gospels. And here again we must realize what in earlier times the Gospels still were for men. It is not very long since the Gospels were not read as they were in the nineteenth century. In those days they were read as a life-giving fountain whence something substantial passed over into the soul. They were not read in the way described in the first lecture of this course, when we were speaking of a false path, but so that a person saw approaching from outside something for which his soul was panting with thirst. They were so read that his soul found pictured therein the real Redeemer, of whom the soul knew that he must be there in the wide universe. Those who understood how to read the Gospels in this way never thought of asking the endless questions which first became questions for the intelligent, clever people of the 19th century. You need only recall how many times in speaking of these questions, in one form or another, we have had to say that for quite clever people who have all science and learning at their fingertips, the thought of Christ Jesus and the events of Palestine are truly not compatible with the modern conception of the universe. In an apparently enlightened way, they say that when men were not aware that the earth is a quite small heavenly body, they could believe that with the cross of Golgotha, a special new event took place on earth. But since Copernicus taught that the earth is a planet like others, can one still believe that Christ came to us from another planet? Why should we believe that the earth is so exceptionally situated, as was formerly thought? A simile is then brought in, quote, Since our conception of the universe has been so much enlarged, it seems as though one of the most important artistic presentations had taken place, not on the great stage of a capital city, but on the small stage of some provincial theatre, So... That is how it looks to these people. The earth is such an insignificant little cosmic body that the events of Palestine appear like the performance of a great cosmic drama on the stage of a small provincial theatre. We can no longer imagine such a thing because the earth is so small in comparison with the great universe. It seems so clever when something like that is said. But after all there is not much cleverness in it for Christianity never asserted what is here apparently contradicted. Christianity has never placed the beginning of the Christ impulse in the magnificent places of the earth. It has always seen a certain deep seriousness in the fact that the bearer of the Christ was born in a stable among poor shepherds. Not only the little earth, but a very obscure place on earth was sought out in Christian tradition to place the Christ therein. Christianity, from the very first, answered the questions of the clever people, but they have not understood the answers which Christianity itself has given, because they could no longer let the living force of the great majestic pictures to work upon the soul. Nevertheless, through the gospel pictures alone, without the Holy Communion and all that is connected with it, For the Holy Communion stands at the center of all Christian cults, an exoteric path to Christ could not have been found. For the Gospels could not then have been widely enough popularized for a finding of the way to Christ to depend on them alone. And when the Gospels were popularized, we can see that it was not an unmixed blessing, for at that same time arose the great misunderstanding of the Gospels. They were taken superficially, and then all that the nineteenth century made of them came about. And indeed, speaking quite objectively, it was bad enough. I think anthroposophists will understand what is meant here by quote, bad enough, close quote. No censure is intended, for we cannot but acknowledge the diligence which the 19th century brought to the task of scientific investigation, including all the work in natural science. The tragedy is that this very science, and anyone familiar with it will grant this, owing to its deep seriousness and its tremendous devoted industry, which one can only admire, has led to a complete splitting up and destruction of what it wished to teach. When in the future course of evolution, people look back at our time, they will feel it to be particularly tragic that men sought to conquer the Bible by means of a science worthy of endless admiration, and succeeded only in losing the Bible. Thus we can see that as regards these two aspects of the exoteric, we are living in a transitional period, and in so far as we have grasped the spirit of theosophy, the old paths must lead over into others. And having now considered the exoteric paths of the past to the Christ impulse, we shall see tomorrow how this relationship to Christ takes form in the realm of the esoteric. We will then conclude our study by showing how we can come to grasp the Christ event not only for the whole evolution of humanity, but for each individual man we shall be able to review the esoteric path more briefly because we have assembled building stones for it during past years. We will crown our endeavors by fixing our gaze upon the relationship of the Christ impulse to every individual human soul. The End of Lecture 9